Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and as always, with managing editor and good friend Richard Hill. Hi, Richard. Yes, here I am, locked down in Sydney, enjoying. Uh, I, I've I've decided that I'm on a desert, a deserted island, uh, with my gorgeous <laughs> wife Susie, and uh, that fantasy is doing it quite well. So we pull the blinds down, and we might as well be. So, um, so couldn't we're doing better, quite. Okay. Couldn't be better. So it, uh, we're Wonderful. having a lot of fun. Well, even though you're locked down, we still get to venture out and talk to different people. We do. Today, we're going to uh, Adelaide in Australia to talk to Dr. Erin Bullis, and she's a clinical psychologist, and she's autistic. So guess what we're going to talk about, Richard? I think we're going to talk about autism. Yes. <laughs> which is fantastic, and isn't it incredible? And, and she'll tell us about this, you know, that, that it's something she discovered later on in life, and, uh, and, and just went, oh, yes, that makes sense. Okay, before we jump across to Adelaide, thank you so much for being a listener here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And if you like what we're doing, you can support us by being a subscriber to the Science of Psychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. That's where you will receive a wealth of information about every aspect of being human. That's right, and it certainly is a, a fundamental part of the of the subscription, which is almost enough. Is every month we come out with the Science of Psychotherapy magazine, uh, mm-hmm. with three or four fabulous uh, new articles from fascinating uh, authors talking about amazing topics, and of course that eventually becomes part of just this constantly growing knowledge base that we have at the Science of Psychotherapy Academy. And it is just, uh, and you can get education uh, point certificates there for a lot of the things that we do. Um, Just fill your head with uh, knowing about the 21st century psychotherapist, as we call them. Wonderful. So love to have you as part of the tribe. Okay, let's go across to our guest. Dr. Erin Bullis, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Great to see you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about having this conversation today. Thanks, and it's Richard here. Lovely to to, to have you uh, to have you with us. So 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 good, and on such an interesting and important subject, I think. Absolutely. Well, let's just dive straight in. Um, so maybe you can just introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background. Sure. So I'm Erin Bullis. I'm a clinical psychologist based in South Australia. And I guess the most probably pertinent piece of information um, in regards to today is that not only do I work with clients on the autism spectrum or autistic clients, but I also have been formally identified as autistic myself um, in my late, in my mid to late 30s. So um, I guess what we, in my clinical work, I come from a perspective of the formal education I had in terms of working from a psychological perspective with autistic clients, but also from a personal lived experience of being autistic and how that informs my practice. What what are the criteria there that, um, you know, sort of designates you into that on the spectrum? Yeah. um, So, well, I guess I was diagnosed according to the DSM-5 
Okay, um, yep. So there's the two sections, the top one, which is the sort of social communicative part, and then the second or bottom section, which is sort of your, I don't like a lot of the terminology, but it's the like yeah. restricted repetitive behaviour, sensory yeah. kind of, you know, deep interest part. Um and so I was lucky enough to tick enough boxes in both sections to uh, be the recipient of a formal diagnosis. Um, even though I guess for a lot of people it, it came as a bit of a surprise because I'm um, what we would call like a high camouflager or an internalizer of the autistic experience. So on the outside, I kind of, I guess, mask it quite a lot, but it's more my internal experience and the way I experience the world that is autistic in nature. And I probably should just say as well, in terms of the language I'm using, um, my pref- my personal preference is identity first language, so autistic. This isn't the preference of everybody on the spectrum, but there was a study in Australia done last year or the year before that found the majority of the autistic community prefer to um, be referred to as on the spectrum. And then the second preference was for autistic. And, um, okay. Um, and referring to people as having having autism or with autism was kind of the least preferred amongst autistic people. Okay, okay. Yeah. Was, was this diagnosis, did this get you interested in psychology and this whole world? Was that part of the... So I was well into the world. So I've been working in the area of autism for almost 20 years now. So through undergraduate, I did my PhD in the area. So I was like well in the area of autism. And I had this kind of, I guess, as as research was identifying more about kind of internalised profiles of autism and camouflaging, and we're getting more of a sense of the diversity of presentations of autism, I had kind of this creeping thought of, like, this sounds a lot like me. And I I used to sit and do diagnostic assessments for other people. And in the back of my head, I'd be like, oh, I do that. I do that. Um, And so there was this, I guess, kind of battling, almost battling against kind of the stigma around it of like, but I'm a psychologist. I can't possibly be autistic. You know, I'm neurotypical. Um, and then over time coming to the realisation that I can be both autistic and a psychologist and then that led me um, over time to seek out a formal assessment and then I got the rubber stamp. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a really interesting aspect of, of people studying all kinds of things, let, let alone. Mm-hmm. So, but, but there is an enormous amount of um, uh, discovery that we are, we are investigating ourselves in in all kinds of things. I mean, people are, are, are drawn to something and they suddenly go into engineering and then suddenly they find they're really good at drawing. Or they're, 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 but, uh, but, of course, what I've always found terribly amusing was the number of people who went in to study law and found out that actually what they were were really good comedians. <laughs> so, so sometimes what you study is is not directly reflective, uh, you know, of of the reality. I mean, it's actually true. Monty Python and all these people, yeah, yeah, yeah. they all did that. And uh, but the, this this aspect so much in in because um, I also do a lot of things with ADHD and various other uh, types, and I I tend to not look so much at, uh, you know, sort of diagnoses or things, although that's relevant, but at types of brains. Yes. No, no. So your brain does things certain ways and it may not be what is considered to be the usual 
So, yes. so therefore, we 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 try and pin it because there's there's I, I'm not sure whether sometimes when someone calls you normal, that that that's actually a, a, a diagnosis as well, which is not necessarily um, that that is not necessarily giving you the the you know the the blue sticker. So, was there any transition? This realization. And then how do you apply that uh, self-awareness along with your all those other things I was just saying into the way you work with other people? Yeah. And I guess like I, I absolutely agree about looking at different types of brains and I love the idea of neurodiversity and looking at neurodivergence rather than necessarily, um, I guess, sticking to the medical model and using, um, using those terms. For me, I think part of it was almost an act of activism that it was like, okay, you know, there's so much stigma and then surely there must be other people thinking, okay, this sounds a lot like me, but I can do all these things. So I can't possibly be autistic when we can be both autistic and have the disability that comes with autism and also be very, I guess, abled in other environments and very able to do um, a lot of things. And so for me, seeking a formal kind of label was, I guess, to almost to work with the medical model and to be able to stand up and say, hey, I meet these criteria and, you know, I am me, if that makes yeah. sense. Oh, the, the, I remember the film with Temple Grandin. Um, and uh, there was a beautiful scene where there was a conference and everybody's sitting around and, and she stood up and said, uh, my name is Temple Grandin, I have a PhD and I'm autistic. And everybody went, oh, right. oh, oh. and they were trying to deal with all what they thought were were. Incon- inconsistent elements, you know. It was uh, it was a it was a very powerful, um, but beautifully gentle scene in the film. Absolutely, and and I think there's a there's a certain amount of privilege that people have to be able to stand up and say, "Hey, this is me, and I'm autistic." Because there are a lot of people who aren't in a situation where at yet where it is safe to do that. But I hope that over time, it becomes less of a like <gasps> moment and more of a yeah, cool. Right, you know, like less remarkable for mm. different types of minds to be doing different types of things. Yeah, yeah. Now, we're talking mostly to psychologists, um, therapists, and because you sit in that seat yourself, let's just talk about clinical approaches to people, you know, who are autistic or on the spectrum. And let's tease out some some of the more salient things that you would want the general psychologist to know. Yes, those situations where it's difficult because obviously when you're managing your autism, that's fine. Uh, Those areas where it becomes a a disablement in the the nature of social functioning. Which I'm guessing is the reason why people would come to you in the first place is because there are some, yeah, there's some challenges and difficulties that they're not coping with. Right. And I guess the first thing to bear in mind is that when there are the challenges and the difficulties, it's not because autism is wrong. It's not because we need to, you know, cure the autism. It's because we, I guess there's a certain mismatch between um, the person's particular profile and maybe the expectations um, day-to-day or societal expectations or social expectations. And so the first thing to to keep in mind is to be what we call um, neurodiversity or neurodivergence affirming. So first and foremost, we want to practice almost a radical acceptance of who the person is, 
get to know them and then work from there on how we can build skills, build capacity, um, maybe provide accommodations. It might be about working with the people around them to better understand their form of communication as well as working with them to help upskill them on other people's communication. Um, So there's quite um, a lot of writing by a researcher called Damien Milton, who is autistic himself. He works at a university in the UK and he came up with a concept called the double empathy problem or the double empathy theory. And this is the idea that when we have two people whose experiences of the world are entirely different, so we might take an autistic person and a non-autistic person, that these two people are going to have probably quite a lot of difficulty understanding each other. And so historically, I guess the the burden to understand has been placed on the autistic person, whereas now we know it's it's a two-way street. We want to build empathy in both sort of different neurotypes to understand each other. So I think that coming into therapy with that understanding is really important to avoid, I guess, placing almost unnecessary burden on the autistic person to change to to make non-autistic people more comfortable when actually it's a two-way street. And so we want to find a balance between upskilling but also working with the people and the environment to also meet the needs of the autistic client. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's been some really interesting. I think some really interesting things in in um, cinema and and television. I mean, there's a wonderful show on at the moment called Atypical. I don't know if we've caught that, but uh, uh, you know, I was looking at it the other day, and there was this beautiful scene uh, between the autistic boy and his girlfriend, and you keep wondering why she stays with him and you realize that what she does is she she's quite happy to sacrifice a little bit of lack of sensitivity for this unbelievable honesty yeah uh, which yes. which comes through in in the particular characters but what's beautiful about the program is that as you're watching it you're going oh my god they're all atypical yes. all of them in their own way have got uh, uh difficulties in managing uh, managing the world is this something that is very important to point out uh, or, or to bring up in the minds of autistic people that, hey, you've got your difficulties, but don't think that normal people are okay? Absolutely, absolutely. And to, to kind of, I guess, normalise that abnormality um, and that we know, we know, you know, often for autistic people, the, I guess, the gap between us and what is expected or what is seen as normal can be greater in some areas. But that's not to say that, you know, people who are closer to this, you know, norm, whatever the norm is, <laughs> that is, you know, what is expected by society, that they've they've somehow completely got it together and all the decisions that they make are spot on and that there's nothing that deviates or diverges for them. So I think that's a really, a really good point. Mm-hmm. I, I've just pulled this. Um, this is a film I just pulled off my bookshelf. It's called Neurotypical. Normal is a cycle on a washing machine. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there, so. there, there was this beautiful one a little while ago, and actually I can't I, – if I say the, the name of the film is The Whale and the Butterfly, everyone can go and find out that I'm right or I'm wrong. Uh, but it was teenage kids and they were uh, autistic, Aspergery. you know, this – I'd like to cover that in, in, just as it comes through. And there was just this 
beautiful thing of showing us the story so we could see. But he was one that became introverted and hid away from making mistakes. And the girl that he was began interacting with, um, she was the other thing. She just blurted out and she just dominated the scene and, and, and created her control by, by that way. So what's this thing of different um, styles of managing the um, quote marks typical environment? How do you teach and work with that? Yeah, and and I think for anybody who already takes kind of a very person centered approach, um, it's it's similar for working with autistic clients. So it's really about getting to know who the person is, what their particular profile is um, in terms of their autistic identity or experience, and then the ways that they've learned to cope with that um, and natural temperament as well. So some people um, are more extroverted, some people more introverted. Um, generally, that that holds for autistic people as well. Um, and also some people have learned to cope by avoiding and other people have learned to cope by maybe... Um, overcompensating in some way or being more out there. So it's about, I guess, coming up with quite a thorough case conceptualization in terms of, okay, this is the person, these are the experiences they've had, and this is how they've learned to cope with a world that's maybe not not always friendly for them. Yeah, so there, so there is a big emphasis on trying to change the environment or the the, the parts of the environment that can be changed, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to trying to change the person. That's what I'm hearing. Absolutely, um, and yeah. and so that suggests that there's probably a lot of work to do with uh, extended family, um, couples work, um, that sort of thing. Is that is that what you find? Absolutely, yeah. and yeah. so when when working with systems. Um, you know, and and it is again, it is a two-way street. Um, but often, just by the very nature of the way society is set up, often autistic people have um, been in situations where they've been, I guess, taught how to interact in non-autistic ways. Yep. Um, but it's much less common for non-autistic people to have been in situations where they've been taught to interact in autistic ways. And we do know from some research. There are a couple of studies over the last couple of years that looked at dyads interacting and they sort of had um, dyads of autistic people, dyads of non-autistic people, and then they mixed it up and they found that both like the same, so the autistic-autistic and non-autistic-non-autistic dyads communicated very well. It was when you had the crossover that things went a bit haywire. So we do know it's not that it's, a, a, I guess, a, a wrong way of communicating and socialising and interacting that autistic people have. It's just different. And so it's about working, working with the client and their systems to, cut, to, to really facilitate almost like a cross-cultural competence. Um, yeah, we, we struggle, I think, as, as, as a culture um, to be responsive to others, we, we we filter things through expectations an enormous amount. Not only with our self assessment, but also in in the other the other assessment. And um, and and now there's all these things going on of saying, say you you have to have to start understanding other people's states, and that helps. We have to you know re-educate ourselves. But just this simple frame of um, of allowing the other person to be themselves. Uh, which is which is which takes a certain amount of courage, I think, in in general culture. But what is it as an autistic person? Is this easier or harder 
to, because of this social cues issue that you have, to actually accept other people as not accepting you or, or um, you know, yeah. these various things that, that kind of the autistic person seems to be dealing with more maturely than the uh, than the other. Yeah, and and yes, and I think there's because there's a lot that that many autistic people do to to, I guess, tone themselves down or hold back things to try and fit in with what's expected. So, um, you know, and and we know again from recent research, and a lot of the research is that is really neurodiversity affirming has only been quite recent. Um, But the recent research has linked camouflaging, which is hiding um, our authentic autistic selves, has linked that to suicidality, poor mental health. So even though that tends to be what therapists might be kind of drawn to do, like, you know, Mm -hmm. therapists might meet an autistic person, think, okay, if I can teach this person to appear more normal, again, whatever that is, then that will be better for their their long-term mental health. Actually, we know it's the opposite because the resources that go into hiding our authentic selves, like just the cognitive resource, you know, the the not being authentic um, really does take a toll long-term on our mental health. So it can, often it's about finding spaces where we can be our authentic autistic selves and do things like stimming, which is, I guess, things like hand flapping and moving around, you know, in in ways that feel quite natural to us as autistic people, but might appear quite odd to other people. So it's about Mm -hmm. finding those spaces where we can be our authentic selves rather than, I guess, having to present as a non-autistic person in order to be provided with connection and in- interaction and you know, all of those, those things. Of things. Mm. Yeah. 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 And do you, do you find that um, people can be very good at camouflaging in social situations and then uh, like the home space, a safe space then is a place where they can sort of, you know, let loose or, you know, blow off steam or, or, or do whatever they need to do because they've kind of been holding it in with intolerable social circumstances that they've had to tolerate at work or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the ideal situation would be that autistic people could just be authentically autistic everywhere and there'll be a level of understanding, but we know Mm -hmm. um, that that's not the case and that a lot of autistic people are very keyed into kind of the, the stigma and lack of awareness and misunderstanding about many of the um, natural autistic ways of being in the world. So having a home space to be able to let loose and, you know, stim away is so important. And for people who don't have that, so for people who have to really, you know, where there's this pressure to kind of hold it together at at work or in an educational setting and then also to do that at home, that's a very, very um, difficult thing that often um, leads quickly um, or not always quickly, but often leads to what's known as autistic burnout, which is similar to other forms of burnout, but comes from, I guess, expending resources on tolerating um, maybe unfriendly sensory environments, from putting effort into interacting in ways that don't come naturally, from, you know, not regulating ourselves in the way that comes naturally through stimming and those kinds of things. And so that can lead to to quite significant periods of burnout. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of a place up here in Brisbane that hires a lot of uh, people, autistic people, their gaming coding, sort of young young guys are into gaming coding and they've got an environment where the autistic guys just thrive. 
What other environments, especially work environments, do you know that really cater um, to autistic people? Yeah, and often it's um, often autistic people, where possible, end up self-employed. Um, so a lot of, for example, the autistic therapists I know, many of them are self-employed. Um, they've, they've worked for other people, and it just it's tricky because um, navigating you know, I guess a lack of understanding um, in those environments can be hard. So often people end up working um, for themselves. Um, it's it's tricky because there aren't a lot of, I guess, existing spaces that are kind of autistic spaces. So often mm-hmm. it's about either trying to create a bit of an autistic bubble within an, within an existing space or creating our own spaces from yeah, scratch, yeah. which is why, you know, I have um, quite a, a, a large Pikachu next to me. Yes, because, yes. Um, yes. For everybody. Like, yeah. yeah. I keep waiting for it to talk. Yeah. <laughs> but, there's, but there's interesting things. I mean, we've, uh, uh, fortunately, through family, um, we're aware of uh, the, the large uh, financial institution, Deloitte's, Mm-hmm. Uh, in in uh, in Australia, and they actually have a neurodiversity program, and 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 our son is actually the head of it in in this particular area, mm-hmm. and uh, he also has extreme dyslexia. So um, quite fascinatingly, we came across this this surprising peculiar aspect of what goes on in these highfalutin financial things where they're not allowed to uh, make recorded notes. You can't make notes that people are going to see. So there's all kinds of secrecy and stuff. And what our boy does is over the years, what he's learned to do is memorise enormous amounts of material. So this is a, an adaptation to the to the program. But what he's been pointing out, and I've been uh, very keen to, to energize as well, is that it is, it is an opportunity for that institution to utilize the thinking type, the, the form of thinking, because that's, uh, and Chris is now a senior manager, so uh, there you go. Uh, actually got a master's degree as well, which is wow. which is extraordinary, yeah. you know, with, with support and, and assistance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of a temple, our temple Grandin. And, uh, uh, but it's it's his unique thinking patterns, which are actually his advantage. And is this something that requires encouragement for some of these kids to realise and for their families too, I suppose? Absolutely, because autistic brains um, often are sort of what we call monotropic, so have a tendency to focus on, you know, one or two things at a time as compared to polytropic minds, which focus on a larger number of, I guess, topics or stimuli or however, whatever word we want to use to describe yes, and, that. And just to jump in there, as, as, as different from the scattered mind, which is just all over everything yes. and not doing anything. Absolutely. But, yeah, so yes. there's monotropic and polytropic, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so a monotropic mind just wants to dive into maybe one topic very thoroughly for quite a period of time. Now, if we think about the way that school settings are set up, there's a lot of switching between subjects, um, even during single lessons, but also over the course of the day, you know, you go to English for an hour and then you're switching to maths. And and so that's set up more for a polytropic kind of mind than a monotropic mind. So often autistic people haven't had a chance to really see what their minds can do when they're kind of allowed to dive into a topic for a period of time and really soak up that information. 
And on top of that, we tend to have differing profiles of productivity and rest. So while non-autistic people might kind of be able to sustain kind of roughly the same productivity across the week, so sort of during, you know, during a school week, um, often autistic people will kind of go hard and then really need to rest. And so that, again, doesn't fit with the deadlines and the way that the school system's set up. So often autistic people will really struggle with the way that the school system's set up and then that impacts on their sense of self and how they see themselves in terms of what they can do and how their minds work and so or how our minds work. And so it can be quite a um, poignant that's not the word I want, but it's the word my mind's giving me. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, no we, we sort of, I, I can yeah. see what you mean. I, I'm just, yeah. I'm just thinking, uh, exams could be therefore a very hit and miss, hit and miss yes. thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hard. Yeah, and some people do very well in exams. Like some autistic people will just rock exams because they could just focus for you know a day or two or three or four, however long they've got to prepare on that topic and then go in and answer very black and white questions and that yeah. works very well for them whereas essays and assignments might be really difficult because it's during the term when they're switching between topics and you know there's this long deadline and so you know in terms of executive function to be to be using that time and juggling different assignments that are all maybe due at the same time that can be a much more difficult situation for this kind of monotropic mind that wants to just dive into things and we also tend to have what's known as orthogonal thinking which is drawing connections between I guess distinct topics that might not usually be connected so sometimes we can come up with quite interesting ideas that might not be what people expect and that, I guess it's a bit hit and miss as to whether that's supported in the current educational system. Some teachers are great at um, responding with an open mind to some of these, I guess, connections that they might not have expected, whereas in other situations, people kind of get a bit shot down for having ideas mm -hmm. that are outside of the box. Yeah. And what, did, what did you call that? Um, orthogonal thinking. Orthogonal. Mm. Well, I must admit... Uh, that's what I do. Brilliant. <laughs> in my thing. I mean, people are talking about something. I, I could remember in high school that I'd be standing around in the circle and people are talking about things and I just go, and I talk about this thing off there and everyone would just pause for a moment and look at me and go, hmm, and get back to the, the topic of conversation. But but in, in the autistic mind, in, in atypical, uh, what they do, he's, he's, the, the character is, is um, uh, totally focused on penguins and, uh, and Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And so when he's got any confusion, um, he relates it back to this thing that he is, is, is comfortable and secure in. And so you're suddenly saying, oh, yes, that's like Mawson when he was walking through. And everyone's going, who, what? But it makes a lot of sense when it's put in context. And, and, and that's, that's sort of the question I'm coming to with this idea of being able to contextualise reality. What are the ways you, you help kids and yourself in, in working with that frame? And, and a lot of it is about, I guess, taking um, areas of, of information that, that are very, um, I guess, well-known, so areas of interest really, like 
pet the penguins in atypical and using that to explain things. So um, there's sort of an idea as well that autistic people don't understand metaphorical speech when actually often many of us are more comfortable speaking in metaphors. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's just the, I guess, the socially constructed metaphors that don't have context that are hard to get. It's like, where did that come from? Whereas there's this social understanding of what that means. Whereas we tend to work the other way where we'll have these idiosyncratic conversations with people and use these metaphors specific to that conversation that helps kind of bridge understanding and explain concepts that might otherwise be difficult to to really be explaining in words because often we'll think in pictures or concepts not always in words um, as our first I guess first way of understanding things yeah Hmm. yeah now we've spoken about a lot of different challenges um, just from a from a clinical psychologist perspective what what are some of the, the the main challenges that you you come up against in my mind i'm thinking young people with relationships at school with education what we've just touched on um so in the educational system one of the the common things that that comes up is the pointlessness of a lot of it which is very hard to disagree with Mm. Um, yeah it's like the more you go into trying to disagree with that you more the more you realize they have a point about the pointlessness of um much of of i guess what they're learning in terms of the relevance to daily life or but i'm not you know i'm not planning to 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 work in an area that's got anything to do with this so why do i need to know this so it's that kind of and and whereas someone else might go okay this seems pointless but I have to do it so I'll do it often autistic people find it very hard if we're not interested in it and it doesn't seem to have a point it is incredibly difficult to get the motivation and get our brains to kind of lock on to doing things so trying to find ways I guess to find a point in some of that some of what needs to happen Yes, and just right. and just getting familiar with that other poor old atypical. I just I really love the series, but um, the, the the sister asked the boy to pick up this dog and take him in, and he said, "Oh, I don't like squirmy things." With this, and she said, "Well, when you go to Antarctica, you may need to pick up a penguin, and they'll squirm." And he went, "Oh, yes, that's quite right." And then he went and picked up the dog and away he went. Mm. So it's mm. this contextualising within the framework of the other, which can be unusual if you don't know the person, if you're coming across this this person um, without knowing, I guess, makes it makes it difficult. Yeah, which is why a big part of working with autistic clients is the therapeutic relationship and really getting to know them yeah. and that, you know, them as an individual and um, not having, I guess, any preconceived notions about what an autistic person is like. Okay, this worked with this other person, so I'll do the same thing because it really is about getting to know people and then framing things to contextualise them in a way that makes sense based on um, the individual's interests and experience mm-hmm. and what makes sense to them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you approach a, so a young adult who just cannot understand why things are not working out relationally, you know, like in finding a partner, that sort of thing? Yeah, and I guess it would, but that's a really tricky situation because mm-hmm. there are so many variables, which is probably what I would discuss with them, just the sheer number of variables um, 
that are involved in that situation. And so, um, and again, depending on the person's, um, you know, the, the way they use language and the way they like to think um, would be trying to um, either make things, either come up with some very concrete barriers and say, okay, we, you know, there's only so so much of this situation that we have personal control over, but let's work on the things that we that are within within our control. Um, or would be just sort of exploring the sheer number of variables, and then from there trying to find, I guess, trying to trying to encourage um, the young person to find some of the things that that they could be doing to um, to, yeah. to change things, and then also some some work on understanding non-autistic people as well. So, again, kind of cultural competence around, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, us autistic people like to do things in this way, but some people don't like things to, to be done in that way. Some people might find that rude. And, and one of the advantages of being an autistic psychologist working with autistic people is we kind of speak the same language. And so even though we might be very different in a lot of ways, there are things that just make sense because we're both autistic, whereas for a non-autistic person, there would need to be some kind of, again, cross-cultural awareness in that moment about what's going on. And often that cross-cultural awareness or translation between cultures, a lot of that kind of naturally falls to the autistic person because we're in the minority. So unless the therapist is very well versed in working with autistic people and has developed this kind of cultural competence and humility, often it's the autistic person going like, no, no, I didn't mean it that way. Like it's... You know, I just you know meant it like this, not like this, or you know that wasn't yeah. me being rude, or you know trying to explain to people what's going on. Explain back. I mean, this is something that Matt and I are really um, uh, getting behind to come to realization ourselves. That there's the first thing that therapists broadly need to do is to, is to get an awareness about stuff. And yes. of course, this is why we're doing this podcast and where we do the, the videos and all the other programs. And once you've got an awareness about something, then you've got the capacity to um, criticize yourself as a therapist, to, to doubt yourself and say, oh, look what I did. And I think I said that wrong and so on and so forth, rather than the other way around. So do you find this what do you think in in this moment, just between us, uh, <laughs> privately here about about other therapists? Do you sometimes, when you're observing or listening to sort of non-autistic, or is it obvious to you sometimes? Yeah, and some sometimes it can be it's quite clear when there's not that understanding or not that awareness, and there's a very um, what I would call like neuronormative lens being put right. on an autistic mm-hmm. person, and so this sort of viewing them through um, a lens or a framework that we would view a non-autistic person through. Um, Uh, And I love it when therapists are open to being maybe gently challenged on that um, mm -hmm. because I love therapists who are are comfortable with criticising themselves and having that healthy self-doubt and that, oh, I messed up, what did I do, what can I do differently next time? And so I guess it's it's great having conversations with therapists who are open like that. Um, it's more concerning to come across therapists who are, who seem to be very clearly, and, and I feel it, it's not it's not a cognitive thing. Like I'll read, for example, um, something that, that a therapist has written in a Facebook group for therapists and, and you just feel that it, it, it doesn't feel accepting of the autism. Mm-hmm. And then, 
you know, I'll look at it more critically and cognitively and then I can figure out what it is about the statement that has given me that initial kind of visceral response. But it's, I guess, more concerning when therapists aren't open to reflecting on maybe some of the language they've used or the way they've framed things um, because then there's no room for growth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Excellent result. Excellent response. All right. What I so from the autistic people that I know, what I love about them is that they're just straight up. You know exactly where you stand. They're just going to tell you the truth. There's no layers of social graces that you know sort of hide the, the truth. You know, I just love that. You, <laughs> I don't know if that's a if that's a typical yeah. thing for atypical oh. brains, but <laughs> yeah. And it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's. I think one of the strengths, and, and I love that working with autistic people as well, is just that, you know, we just have this mutual honesty um, yeah. in, in the sessions yeah. that works really, really beautifully. And it can be really confusing as an autistic person when other people aren't brutally honest like that. Mm. Um, mm, that's because that, that's our preferred communication style. And when people are skirting around something or, you know, not saying what they mean, it's like, just just say it. Like, And I think part of that is because often the facts um, feel more important than um, social niceties. So I would be hugely offended if I was saying incorrect information and one of my friends didn't correct me about that. Like to me, that's, you know, if you're a friend, you will correct me when I'm wrong. Um, Whereas I know, well, I've come to understand that for non-autistic people, often um, it's the other way around. So kind of maintaining social nicety is often um, given more value than kind of the the truth and the facts and Mm, making sure that, yeah. Yeah, they address that beautifully and atypical with uh, constantly just uh, with 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 his um, uh, with his friend who constantly says, "Oh yes, I'll teach you how to lie," you know? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and we have this wonderful sort of you know didactic sort of process of I say this and I say that and I say the other thing, which he then does. And the person who he's talking to uh, totally is sucked in by the lie. And all he was doing was doing a pragmatic sort of reproduction of, of, of a technique, um, which, yes. which uh, uh, yeah, so th- these, yeah. these beautiful uh, aspects. Because uh, another one in the media that we've, we've had an opportunity, and, mm-hmm. and I don't know whether any of these people sort of fit in this, where they fit in the spectrum if they do, but I had these um, reality shows, but Beauty and the Geek yes. has been a show that's on. And watching not so much the, the boys who are the geeks and some on the spectrum, some are just a, a, a little bit uh, socially inept, but the girls who have gone through this process of being manipulated and utilised and so on and so forth and actually hitting honesty and kindness and directness. It, it's, uh, that, that's a, a real thing, again, for people to just to, to have a little look at, to get an idea. Absolutely. And and when and, and I guess in a therapeutic context, it's really important to have a good understanding about this very honest and just I guess paired back real way of interacting because often it can be mistaken for power plays. So 
Um, mm. For example, if a therapist says there's, you know, this technique or there's this study or, or whatever, and then the autistic client says, I've read about that, that's been debunked or no, there's a more up-to-date <laughs> theory, um, <laughs> often therapists will, will take that as a power play or maybe kind of a narcissistic trait, whereas actually that's just a very autistic way of prioritising the facts over social nicety. <laughs> yeah, so the therapist is returning with a bit of a power play and a little bit of narcissism, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, well, I guess it could be a bit intimidating when the client knows more about the recent studies than you do. <laughs> yes, which 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 happens. Yeah, yeah and not sure. infrequently. Yeah, and 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 should do it, it. It is one of these these very great difficulties that that therapists suffer uh, struggle. I, I mean, I, I had someone the other day who, who said something. You know, do what do I do with this? And I said, look, I don't know. She said, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> and uh, and I had to come back and say. You do realise I don't have to know everything. Yes, <laughs> uh, so, so humility was required, but it, yeah. it was beautiful. But is there something um, uh, that we've missed, or is there is there a little bit of a, a summary or or a final uh, uh, statement that you just like to put in as we 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 run this to a close? And I guess um, one of the one of the key things is really just to be learning from autistic people about autistic people. And mm. in the research, there's starting to be more participatory research where autistic people are involved not in a tokenistic way, but involved in the planning and production of research. Um, and when it comes to a clinical setting, it's really about learning from the autistic community and um, the number of autistic therapists that are around as well, um, particularly if you're not autistic yourself as a therapist and you're working with autistic people, then just learning as much as you can from the autistic community about what it's like to have lived experience of autism um, rather than learning from the textbooks, which are a very kind of outside in look at autism. And there's some wonderful films and TV and and uh, media things that people can use to 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 get some awareness. Yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Dr. Erin Bullis, thank you so much for joining us here. Oh, thank you for having me. Wow, that was. She was so interesting, uh, and and so interesting because of um, so many of the of aspects of autism that, that you think are the stereotypical things she didn't really exhibit. But then she has her other ones, which uh, which uh, you know she's very aware of, and that it makes sense to her to have this sense of autism. Um, but but I think it was beautiful. There was something you, you, you were talking about um, that we need. We kind of still need to have the diagnosis mm. because that's how we're able to still supply the assistance because the assistance or the, the acceptance of autism isn't in our infrastructure, isn't in our system, mm. our, our cultural processes. Yeah, yeah. I think we were talking about that after we stopped the recording. Just mm. I, I asked the question, how important is the DSM, you know, um, diagnostic criteria? And in some ways it's detrimental, but in other ways it's helpful in terms of getting help and, and bringing awareness. So it is what yeah. it is. So let's let's build the acceptance and build the the uh, opportunities and gateways and pathways that that where we can utilize the the autistic brain in the same way that we use the science brain and the art brain and the swimming. Uh, we've just had the Olympics, so we use the swimming brain and the athletic brain. Uh, they're all yeah. functional, useful mechanisms um, that um, that we just have to utilize the functional mechanisms for. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for everyone for joining us here on the Scientist Psychotherapy podcast. Once again, if you do enjoy what we're doing, please come across to the scientistpsychotherapy.net and become a subscriber. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. But until next time, Richard, been a pleasure. And away we go. Off into the wild blue yonder of, uh, for me, the same room I'm in. <laughs> but uh, anyway, bye for now. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.